Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Well, I'm excited to be with you ladies today to talk with you about the things that I have seen and that I have learned uh, through reading and studying in chapters 4 through 7 of Samuel. Colleen did a great job last week, um, an incredible job of teaching and telling us about the self-sacrificing faith of Hannah and how Hannah had to learn that God was enough for her and that how we also need to be like Hannah and to recognize that God is enough for us in good and the bad days. I'm a history teacher at Providence Preparatory uh, School in Belton, and so consequently I can't help but share with you guys some uh, history uh, through this lesson. So I want to tell you a couple of historical perspectives that I have seen as I use, as I study history. Um, it really helps me to look deeper into the passages, helps me to understand the people, the times that the things are going on, and maybe even to get into the shoes of the people there. And so it gives a really great different perspective, sometimes making the passages a little richer. After I've shared with you a few of those things and I want to leapfrog into the future and then turn around and look back at the Samuel passage and just look at it from a different perspective. So chapters 4 through 7 are bounded by two battles. We've got two battles with the Philistines as well as two Ebenezers. We have Ebenezer town as well as Ebenezer stone on both ends of this. And remember Ebenezer means a stone of help. We have a town and a stone. This is happening during the Iron Age we had the Bronze Age, and then now we have the Iron Age. And interestingly, it is thought that the Philistines were the ones that brought the technology of iron making, blacksmithing into the Middle East. And it is possible that they actually were the ones. We don't know for sure. But because of that, they had this highly technical, highly secretive art of making tools and weapons out of iron. We know that it was secretive, at least to the Israelites, because they did not have blacksmiths. We read that in 1 Samuel chapter 13, where the Philistines, they had, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines in order to get weapons and things made or sharpened. So therefore, because the Philistines had iron, they were the dominant military force in the area. And you can kind of think of it like um, guns versus bows and arrows. There's just no competition at all. Well, in chapter 4, we see where the Israelites, and even beyond, or excuse me, behind that, we can see from the first part where uh, Colleen was talking about last week, as well as back in the summer when we read Ruth, and even further back when we look at Judges. We can see where the Israelites have forgotten and abandoned God. They have forgotten the promises of God. They have forgotten the promises that they made to God. They have forgotten the covenant that they made with him. And even under Eli's leadership, their view of God has become very, very small. In fact, he's been reduced to almost like a God in a box, as opposed to the God king that he was supposed to be for all of Israel. So when they go out to meet the Philistines in that first battle, they know that they're already in a serious disadvantage. They don't have those weapons that they do. And so in a last-ditch effort, kind of like a last thread of hope, they then against this mighty enemy, again, remember, guns versus bow and arrow type idea, but then they go and they decide to go get God. They go get him back in Shiloh, send people to go back and get him. 
And so as you, if you looked at one of the maps that um, Amy sent to us, you would see that Shiloh from Ebenezer is about 20 miles. You can walk 14 miles in a day. And so that's about a three-day journey that you would be traveling. Uh, plenty of time for whoever, whatever four men went to go get the ark for them to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Plenty of time for them to do that. So we know that the ark gets captured by the Philistines in chapters 3 and 4. Let me give you a little bit of history about the ancient Near East in that time. Gods were often seen to be tied to their lands. They were effective on the land and the territory where they were. And if you took a god away from their lands, they were often seen as inept, less powerful. You might be able to, you might peeve a god, you might make him mad, but he wasn't near as powerful as if he were on his home turf. So to capture an enemy's god or gods, that was really quite an ultimate defeat. A second thing I want to share with you about the ancient Near East, it was very common after a victorious battle for the winning uh, general to go through and to have his, his commanders to go and cut off the hand of the losing of the enemies. And they would, dead or alive, they would cut the hand off of them. And that would be a way of counting to who had survived and who, or who had didn't, actually who had died. And it, again, we have dead or alive, and you know the whole idea of counting by hand? Well, that kind of has its roots in this action of counting by hand, by counting the dead. It was also not unheard of for the enemies to then, after a victorious uh, battle, for them to go and take the heads off of their enemies as well. And then the leaders most often would display the heads of their enemies much like a trophy, and we see that in just a few chapters. This happens with Saul, and we know this also happens in history time and again. This happens specifically with the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, and he took the heads off of his enemies, multiple heads, takes them back to the capital of his uh, kingdom, of his empire, Nippur, and he hangs them in the garden while he and his wife are dining. Talk about ambiance, right? So back at the battle, we have 34,000 Hebrews have died. 34,000 Hebrew soldiers have been killed. I mean, just imagine the numbers. Picture in your mind 34,000 bodies lying dead on a field. That right there says defeat. But then on top of that, the Philistines are able to get hold of the God box of the Israelites and they take him from his land and take him into their land. So he's no longer on his home turf. I mean, it actually looks like he wasn't even powerful enough anyway, because look at all the dead people. So this trophy ark is then, like any other polytheistic culture would do, put in the temple with their god, like a trophy with Dagon. So couple that with what I just told you about the ancient Near East and some of the customs that they would do of cutting off the heads and the hands of their enemies, there is no doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind that the Philistines understood clearly what God was saying here, that the God of the Israelites was more powerful. And surprisingly, in their territory, and even more surprisingly, in the temple of Dagon. Talk about on home turf. At the same time that there is this heavy, heavy hand happening to the Philistines, 
you have the judgment of God on them and they're experiencing the defeat of Dagon. You've got the boils, you've got the rats, you've got the plague, um, all of those things, a heavy judgment hand of God there. You also have the birth of Ichabod. And remember what Ichabod means. It, remain, it means that the glory has departed from Israel. And so we have this parallel going on of judgment, the heavy hand of God bringing judgment upon the Philistines and then the hand of God withdrawing from the Israelites because they have not been obeying him wholeheartedly. And they know it. God is no longer present with us. He has left us. We have done terribly, horribly wrong. We have sinned against him and there is no more hope. The study, I really like how they pointed out that it's a multifaceted working of God. That God is judging their sinful practices of worshiping Yahweh because they trivialized him. And yet he's also judging Philistines for their idol foolery. If you move on to chapter 7, verse 2, there's a little bitty phrase in there that says, after they got the ark back, it says, some 20 years have passed. And I hadn't really ever paid attention to that before. But some 20 years have passed. That means Ichabod's about 20-ish, 20 years old. And the people are still lamenting the day that the ark was taken and returned. They're still lamenting, woe is us. This was a horrible judgment. This was awful times. Do you remember that? Yes, that was awful. And God left and all of those things. Lament, lament. For 20 years they were doing this. 20 years. So when Samuel is going through on his circuit throughout Israel, judging, leading the Israelites, it's, you can almost hear him saying, look, if you guys are serious, and in a sense this is what he says, but he says, if you're serious about you lamenting this Ark and Ichabod situation, then, then devote yourselves wholly. Show up at Mizpah, quit speaking with words and saying that you're sorry, and mean it with action. Be wholly devoted to the Lord and make atonement and follow him, not with just your words. So then we have all of Israel shows up at Mizpah. So this is a question I have for the text, which we don't really get an answer for, but it says all Israel. What does all Israel mean? Does that mean men, women, children? Does that mean elders? Does that mean tribal leaders? Don't really know, but it says all Israel. We're just going to go with the all Israel. When they come, because we know that they're making atonement, and we know they're making atonement because they are sacrificing a whole burnt offering, a whole animal, it's a young lamb, um, and that is for atonement. And because they're doing that, this is not a happy celebration. This is a somber celebration. And you can imagine, much like the Day of Atonement that they take once a year, that um, then this day of atonement is very possible that they're not prepared for war. They're coming maybe in sackcloth and ashes. Maybe their clothes are ripped. Well, they might have a, a sword strapped to their side, but they're not ready for war. And interestingly, the Philistine lord somehow find out about this. Did spies go out? Did, did word get across? I mean, this is 20 miles inland into Israel, that the Philistines come into Israel and do this. And it's like deja vu all over again. Aphek and Ebenezer, all over. Here come the Philistine lords, and the people are at their most vulnerable. And God does what only God can do. 
instead of being wielded and forced into doing and serving the people, God says, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm the one that calls the shots here. And he displays his might through thunder. He displays his mercy because the people were vulnerable. They were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. And we would all agree that they deserve to die because they were not following God wholeheartedly with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And instead, he showed mercy by routing their enemy. We see him showing his steadfast love that he is the one who keeps his promise. He is the one who keeps the covenant that he had made with Abraham and with Isaac, even when they could not keep the promise. We see here judgment, Ichabod, mercy, atonement made. And the people are saved. And consequently, Samuel puts up, their prophet Samuel puts up Ebenezer, a stone of help. God came and was merciful and helped them when they need it. And remember that, people. So this is a definite lesson that the Israelites learned. They learned it. We know that they learned because they wrote it down for us so that we could look back at it later generations. That they learned that they had acted in their own strength at Ebenezer Town. And they utterly failed, trying to make God do what they wanted God to do, wielding a God in a box. I think Psalm 103 says it well. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And did they not see that? how he did not repay them according to what they were deserving and how he was slow to anger and gracious and merciful to them. So as I was pondering this passage, I thought, well, yeah, you know what? There's another time that the ark was taken. There was another time under Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Why was the ark taken then? Because the Israelites had not followed God wholeheartedly with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call the people back to him. Come back and serve me wholeheartedly. Put the other gods aside. And they didn't. And he said, I will judge you. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in not once but twice and judges the, and, and judges the people. God uses him as the judge. And he takes the ark back to Babylon. And he destroys the glorious temple. And it's while the the exiles are in Babylon that we have Ezekiel. Ezekiel by the canal of Chabar. And he is having a vision. He sees the glory of the Lord. And he sees Jerusalem. And while he sees Jerusalem, he sees that the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. Ichabod. Ichabod, again, God's judgment. Did the people maybe think about Samuel? Did they look back and remember having been taught and told about Samuel? And did they think about, you know, in Samuel's day, yeah, there was Ichabod, and they could have been wiped out, rightly so, because they they did not follow God wholeheartedly. And just like then, would there be a prophet for us that would lead them into making atonement? Would there be a prophet like then for us to lead us into forgiveness? Ebenezer, stone of help, God would be merciful. 
he was merciful to the exiles, and he would show his steadfast love to them again. That he is the God who keeps promises. The promises and his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and to David. Did the people, did the Israelites later, if you leapfrog a little bit later, did they hear and feel the heavy judgment of God when they were under the oppression of the filthy Greeks? When uh, they were under the hard, hard uh, times of the Romans, the detestable and hateful Romans, feeling that heavy, heavy hand of judgment during that time, having lost God's favor. Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory of God is gone. There is one more time that we see Ichabod. One more place. And it's a beautiful place. It's at the cross. And it's at the cross that we see and we hear Ichabod, Ichabod again. Glory gone. Right judgment coming. But yet, we have a perfect prophet. The perfect prophet who has come to lead his people back to God. We have the perfect priest who's not just bringing a atonement. He is bringing the atonement once and for all, for all people. And it's the judgment, Ichabod, Ichabod, the judgment upon the one who never sinned for those who did sin. Merciful God, atonement made. Jesus became our Ichabod so that we could experience Emmanuel, God with us. Hmm. From Samuel, we, it looks like the end. It looks like the end is here. That little string that they just pulled on for that last thread of hope that they had, and they just pulled on it, and the tapestry just fell apart. It's what it looked like. But we can look ahead, and then we can look back. No. Instead, that thread is being woven all throughout biblical history with great hope, merciful hope. Ichabod no more. Emmanuel. Ladies. Emmanuel. God is with us. So, as we face today, as we face tomorrow, as we have great days, as we have deep, deep, deep valleys, <laughs> as we face November, January 1st, great healings, another pandemic, two or three, and day or darkness, Ladies, God is with us. Emmanuel, would you pray with me? Oh, great and merciful God. I'm so thankful. So thankful, so grateful. For what you have done. The atonement that you came and made. The, the peace that you give us. Thank you for being that Ebenezer. Thank you for being the perfect prophet, the perfect peace. Thank you for taking Ichabod for us so that we can experience freely Emmanuel. It is in your beautiful, precious name that I pray.